Section 33 of the American Book of the Dog. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The American Book of the Dog. G.O. Shields, Editor. Section 33. The Saint Bernard. By F.E. Lamp. The real origin of this grand dog is shrouded in mystery. For although we find records of his existence in Switzerland during the 10th century, there appears to be no authentic record concerning its origin or early development. It is evident that the monks at the Hospice and Simplon had a breed of dogs, which was named after the good old monk St. Bernard de Menton, who educated a few large dogs in his possession to traverse the mountains and aid or rescue very and travel on pedestrians, who had attempted to cross the snow-capped cliffs. These dogs were trained to go out and pass, and when they succeeded in finding a belated traveller, one would hasten back to the monastery to alarm its inmates, while the other would endeavour to arouse the almost dying man with its barking and other demonstrations of distress. A writer in the Fancier Gazette says, The Alpine, or St. Bernard, dog was not manufactured at the monastery, neither was the variety originated some centuries after the death of St. Bernard de Maison himself. On the contrary, it is a well-known fact that the breed was in existence, in a crude and uncultivated state, I admit, but still in existence, long before the founding of the hospice at St. Bernard, as there are specimens of the old type to be found in some parts of Switzerland to this very day, a breed of dogs ingenious to the soil, but which has been, with judicious and careful breeding, so improved that in place of the rugged mountain dog of past ages, we have the fixed and admirably defined type of the modern St. Bernard. End of quote. Vero Shaw, in his valuable work, The Book of the Dog, quotes portions of a letter from Monsieur Schumacher regarding the origin and early history of the St. Bernard, which I take liberty of reproducing here, meantime acknowledging my obligations to Mr. Shaw and his publishers, Messrs. Kessel and Co., for the use of the same. The letter is as follows. According to the tradition of the Holy Fathers of the Great Saint Bernard, the race descends from a crossing of a bitch, a bulldog species of Denmark, and a mastiff, shepherd's dog of the Pyrenees. The descendants of this crossing, who have inherited from the Danish dog its extraordinary size and bodily strength of the one part, and from the Pyrenean mastiff the intelligence, the exquisite sense of smell, and at the same time faithfulness and sagacity of the other part, have acquired in the space of five centuries so glorious a notoriety throughout Europe that they well merit the name of a distinct race for themselves. In winter, the service of the male dogs, the females are employed or engaged only at the last extremity, is regulated as follows. Two dogs, one old and one young, travel over every morning the route on the Italian side of the mountain towards Aosta. Two more make the voyage on the Swiss side, towards Martigny, to a distance of about nine miles from the hospice. They all just go to the last cabins of refuge that have been constructed for the benefit of travelers. Even when the snow has fallen during the night, the dogs find their way surely and correctly, and do not deviate from the beaten way a yard. The marks of their feet leave a track which is easy for travelers to follow as far as the hospice. Two dogs are made to go over the same road together, so if one perishes, it is replaced by another, a young one, who is instructed and trained by the surviving dog, of which he is the pupil. When the dogs arrive at the cabins of the refuge, they enter them to see if there are any travelers seeking shelter there, in which case they entice them to follow. If they find any travelers who have succumbed to the cold, the dogs try to revive them by imparting warmth, 
in licking the hands and face, which not seldom produces the desired effect. If these means are inefficient, they return in all speed to the hospice, where they know how to make themselves understood. The monks immediately set out, well provided with the means of recovery. In 1812, a terrible snowstorm took place, and the aid of the monks and dogs was so constantly required that even the female dogs, the most feeble animals, were called into requisition and perished. There were a sufficient number of males left, but not a single female. How was the breed to be kept up? The monks resolved to obtain some females of the Newfoundland breed, celebrated for her strength and accustomed to cold climate. This idea turned out useless when put into practice, because the young dogs had long hair. In winter this long hair so collected the snow that the poor beast succumbed on its white and perished. The monks then tried crossing one of their own dogs with the offspring of the crossbreed, with their short, stubby hair. At last this plan succeeded. From that bastard female dog, they have reconstituted the race of dogs that are now in the hospice. These dogs, notwithstanding their cross with the Newfoundland, have the same valor and courage as the ancient race, because, by intelligent and systematic choice, they rear for service and reproduction only the puppies who approach the nearest, by their exterior form and appearance, to the original and fatherly race. Those that proved themselves unable to sustain the work, or who from their long hair were disabled, were either given as souvenirs to friends of the hospice, or else sold. Of such are those that have been sold to Monsieur de Portal at Metlin, near Bern, and to Monsieur Rouchemont at Löwenberg, near Morat. These dogs come directly from the hospice, where they are not fit for work on account of their long hair, but are distinguished by their colossal size and excellent qualities. They always retain in the hospice the finest dogs and train them for service. Those who do not possess all the marks of genuine breed are given away or sold, because among the number they still find some puppies with long hair who thus reveal their motherly ancestry. It is now some ten years since it could be read in many papers that a Mr. Essig of Leonberg had presented to the hospice a couple of dogs of the celebrated Leonberg breed, which is extraordinarily large and handsome. His intention was laudable and worthy of acknowledgement. But these dogs shared the same fate as those of Newfoundland some fifty years previous. Their long hair was their ruin, they perished, and at present there does not exist in the hospice a single trace of these beautiful dogs of Leonberg. As already said, the Count of Rougemont at Löwenberg, Nemora, possessed a couple of superb dogs which were presented to him from the hospice, because they were not good enough for the work on account of their long hair. These dogs were very large and very handsome, the color of their coats was a red-brown, and they had white spots in their feet, their necks, their breasts, and their noses. Muzzle. They were on the paternal side of the ancient Bernardine race, and on the maternal side of the Newfoundland race. Several litters of puppies were reared from this couple, which were given away and sold, and thus became spread about. In 1854, the female dog gave birth, among others, to a little puppy of wretched appearance, spotted white and brown, which was not at all valued by the owner. This wretched-looking puppy was sold as a miserable abortion to Mr. Klopfenstein, of Neuenegg, who trained it with care and attention. It prospered marvelously, and growing up, attained a striking likeness to Barry, the most beautiful specimen of the ancient unmixed race, which is now preserved at the museum at Bern. Its resemblance was so remarkable in regard to external appearance and color of its hair, 
that when i saw the dog for the first time i resolved to obtain it at whatever sacrifice i bought then this dog in 1855 it being a year old and called it barry on account of its striking resemblance to his illustrious ancestor i entrusted it to baron j at glockenthal near Thun, and both of us reared some young dogs during many years but without success never could we get young dogs resembling the original race until 1863 when a puppy was born from the bitch Weiermann of Interlaken, of which Barry was the father. This puppy named Sultan, which was the image of Barry, came into my possession. I bred from Sultan without success until I received a bitch from St. Gall, whose father had been one of the St. Bernard dogs. This bitch named Diana, with Sultan, produced such beautiful puppies that at last I saw my end achieved. At the second birth were two, male and female, so surpassingly fine that I resolved in silence to present them as a gift to the hospice, in the belief that these dogs, habituated now the fourth generation to a temperate climate, well selected from generation to generation, would invigorate and regenerate the ancient ways with descendants of its proper blood. The gift was accepted. I took them when they were seven years old, in January 1866, to Martigny with some of the old brothers passed the winter. The oldest of the monks received me with this exclamation, Mais, mon Dieu, c'est comme le vieux Barry! Why, this is exactly like the old Barry! I asked him which Barry he alluded to. Why, said he, to that one that stuffed at Bern, and then continued to relate that in the year 1815, he had himself taken Barry, the living, on foot to Bern, where he was killed and stuffed. The old man wept with joy and said without ceasing, Sardonera Berry, le vrai vieux Berry, que je suis heureux. This is Berry, the genuine old Berry, how happy I am. There at the present time, 1867, at the hospice, some young puppies of Berry that promise well, and which will be, according to all appearances, still finer and larger than Berry himself. End of quote. The Saint Bernard, as we find him about the beginning of the present century, was much the same as we know him at this time, an animal of great size, immense bone, and a large head expressive of great character and intelligence. There existed then, as now, two varieties, the rough or long-haired and the smooth or short-haired. The latter were preferred by the monks, for when the dogs were obliged to go out on their errands of mercy in heavy snowstorms, the rough coats of the former would in a short time become matted, and owing to continued exposure, colds, rheumatisms and kindred troubles would ensue, thus rendering them unfit for duty at times. Hence the long-haired type came to be looked upon with disfavor, and numerous specimens were given away from time to time to persons who visit the monastery. In this way the breed was introduced pretty generally into the south of France and throughout all of Switzerland. Several authorities on the subject tell us about the year 1810, through the effects of a terrible avalanche, all the dogs owned at the hospice were swept away and killed. After this, a pair that have been given away when mere puppies were returned, and from these alone the true Saint Bernard of today is descended. Itstone gives a different version of this affair. He says, the breed of Saint Bernards had undergone some changes within the last half century. A pest of virulent temper at one time carried off all the dogs of the breed but one, and that, I believe, was crossed with the pioneer wolfhound. End of quote. Whether this be true or not, there can be no doubt that during several centuries of its existence as a breed, there have been many crosses and experiments made to develop its strength, 
sand and durance and this fact probably accounts for the great variety which we now find existing among our best dogs the first saint bernard of which any authentic history exists is the now famous old barry this dog was descended from the pair returned to the monks after their loss and he is reported to have saved the lives of forty-two persons in the mountains of switzerland it is from this celebrated dog that schumacher's barry the first traces his pedigree and from a union of this dog with a bitch at the hospice that sultan the first was produced favorita the first and tony the first were bred from sultan out of diana the first and to these dogs and their little brothers and sisters is as far back as any authentic st bernard pedigree can be traced herr schumacher of holligen switzerland is the man to whom we are indebted for the introduction of the breed into england and from thence into this country it was from his kennels that reverend j c Macdonough and mr dillon who are considered the first to import st bernard's secured their stock mr Macdonough's champion tail was considered for many years the best smooth-coated dog in existence he was thirty and one-half inches high at the shoulder and weighed only one hundred and fifty pounds in his best condition his skull measurement was but twenty-two inches by comparing these measurements with those of the largest dogs of today we may obtain a good idea of the great improvement that has been made within comparatively few years not only in size but in type if we are to judge from the paintings of the famous dogs of eighteen and twenty years ago a few years later mr macdonald imported into england thor afterward a champion and jura two grand rough-coated specimens and achieved great success with them on the bench it might be well to note here that although bench shows have been held for the past eighty years yet it was not until a show held at cremorne in march eighteen sixty three that a class was made for st bernard's prizes were won at the show by bates monk and stone's monk both having been imported from the husbandman puppies from this time on the breed grew in favour and popularity and gradually came to occupy the conspicuous place in which we now find it at our shows no standard of points colour or markings was adopted to guide the breeder or exhibitor until eighteen eighty six when the swiss canonical society adopted a standard which while approved by many fanciers was not generally accepted at an international congress held in zurich for the purpose a standard of points was adopted which was shortly afterwards approved by the st bernard clubs of england and of america we give it herewith in full standard of points the smooth st bernard general character powerful tall upstanding with hard muscular development massive head and very intelligent expression in dark with dark face markings the expression is more solemn but should never be sore head like the body very powerful and imposing the massive skull is wide slightly arched and sloping at the sides with a gentle curve into the well-developed cheekbones Occiput. only slightly developed the supraorbital ridge is strongly developed and forms nearly a right angle with the horizontal axis of the head between the supraorbital arches at the root of the muzzle begins a deep furrow which clearly defined in the first half extends over the whole skull getting gradually shallow towards the occiput the lines at the side from the outer corners of the eyes diverge considerably toward the back of the head the skin on the forehead forms over the supraorbital arches deep wrinkles which converge towards the above-mentioned furrow they are particularly noticeable when the animal is very animated without giving a savage expression stop clearly defined mother short not snipey 
and an imaginary line through the muzzle straight down from a stop must be longer than the length of the muzzle. The bridge of the muzzle is straight, not arched, and in some good dogs slightly broken. From the root of the muzzle or stop descends its whole length to the nose a rather wide, well-marked, shallow furrow. The strongly developed lips of the upper jaw do not form an angle at the turning point, but slope with a graceful curve into the lower edge, and are slightly overhanging. The lips of the lower jaw must not be pendant. Teeth, in proportion to the size of the head, only moderately large. Nose, very substantial and broad, with well-dilated nostrils and, like the lips, always black. Ears, medium-sized, with the burr strongly developed, which causes them to stand away a little at the base, and bending, suddenly they drop without any curl to the side of the head. The flaps are not too leathery, and form round triangles slightly elongated towards the points. The front edge ought to be close to the head, but the back edge may stand away a little, particularly when the dog is in attention. Ears with weak burr, causing them to lie close to the head from their root, give it an oval shape, which imparts too much softness to the outline, whereas strongly developed ear muscles make the skull appear more angular and wider, thus giving the head more character. Eyes, set more to the front than to the sides, are of moderate size, brown or not brown, with an intelligent and friendly expression, set moderately deep. The lower eyelids do not, as a rule, fit closely to the eyeballs and form toward the inner corner an angular wrinkle. Eyelids which are too pendant, with conspicuously protruding lacrimal glands, or a very red haw, are objectionable. Neck, set on high, carried upright when the animal is animated, otherwise horizontal and slightly downward. The junction between head and neck is distinctly indicated. The neck is very muscular and rounded at the side, giving it an appearance of shortness. Clearly noticeable dewlaps, but too great a development not desirable. Shoulders. Sloping and broad, very muscular and powerful. The part of the body answering to the withers and the horse, well developed. Chest, well arched, moderately deep, not reaching below the elbows. Back. Very broad and only slightly arched over the loins, otherwise straight to the hip, and from the hip, gently sloping to the rump, and merges gradually into the tail. Hindquarters well developed, legs very muscular. Belly. Only slightly drawn up and showing distinctly where it joins the very powerful region of the kidneys. Tail, starting broad and powerful, directly from the rump, is long, very heavy, and ending in a blunt tip. In repose, it hangs straight down, turning gently upward in the lower third. In many specimens, is slightly turned up and hangs, therefore in shape of an F. In excitement, all dogs carry their tails more or less raised, but it must not go to the extent of being erect or even curled of the back. A slight curling around the tip is sooner admissible. Arms very powerful and extraordinary muscular. Forearms, straight and strong. Hind legs, slightly bent in the hooks, and according to the presence of single or double dew claws, the feet turn outward more or less, which, however, must not be understood to mean cow hooked. Feet, broad, with strong toes, moderately well closed up, and knuckles razor high. The single or double dew claw set on low, so as to be almost on a level with the pad of the foot, giving a greater surface and preventing the dog from breaking so easily through the snow. There are dogs which have on their hind feet a regularly developed fifth toe or thumb. The so-called Dewclaws, Wolfsklauen, which sometimes occur on the inside of the hind legs, are imperfectly developed toes. They are of no use to the dog and are not taken into considering in judging. Coat, very dense, broken-haired, lying smooth, hard without being rough to the touch. 
ties are slightly feathered. The hair at the root of the tail is rather long and dense, getting gradually shorter toward the point. The tail appears bushy, but not feathered. Color. White with red, or red with white, the red in all its various shades, white with light to dark bared brindle patches, or these colors with white markings. The colors red, brindle, and tawny are of equal value. Obligatory marks are white chest, feet, point of tail, and white round the nose and collar. The white spot on the nape of the neck and a blaze are much desired. Never self-colored or without any white. All other colors are faulty, except the favorite dark shadings in the face markings and on the ears. Height at shoulder. Dogs, measured with the hound measure, ought not less to be than 75 cm, 29.5 inches, and bitches 70 cm, 27.5 inches. The bitches are throughout of a less powerful and slighter build than the dogs. Variations from these points are to be considered faulty. The long-haired, rough St. Bernard is exactly like the other, with the exception of the coat, which ought not to be broken-haired, but of medium length, smooth or slightly wavy, never very wavy, curly or shaggy. The coat, as a rule, more wavy on the back, particularly in the region of the hip and rump. The same thing is noticeable in the short-haired, even the hospice dogs. The tail is bushy, with much but moderately long hair. Wavy or locky hair on the tail is not desirable. A feathered tail, or one with a parting, is faulty. Face and ears are covered with soft hair. At the bases of the ears, longer silk hair is permissible. In fact, this occurs nearly always and must be considered normal. The feathers on the forelegs is only slight, but on the ties it appears bushy. Balls are all formations which indicate a Newfoundland cross, such as a saddleback and a disproportionately long back, hooks to much bend, and spaces between the toes with upward-growing hair. There has been considerable controversy regarding the exact number on the scale of 100 that each point should count. There has never been adopted a scale of this kind, as point judging, as it is termed, is but seldom resorted to. However, the following scale is popular with many of the English judges of the St. Bernard. As a matter of information, we give it space. Scale of points. Head, value 20. Neck and shoulders, 5. Chest and loin, 5. Body, 10. Tail, 5. Legs and feet, 10. Coat, 10. Color and markings, 10. Size, 15. Character and symmetry, 10. Total, 100. Regarding the question of coat, there is a great diversity of taste and opinion among American fanciers, but many prominent breeders are endeavoring to accomplish greater uniformity in this matter, and it is to be hoped that in future the St. Bernard exhibits at our shows may not present such a bewildering and unintelligible display of coat in both rough and smooth variety as we now often see. Mr. K. E. Hopf, one of our most prominent breeders, recently discussed the subject in a most interesting letter to one of the sportsman's journals. He says, Many people believe that the short-haired and long-haired St. Bernard are two distinct breeds and that the latter is not so pure as the former. This is no more the case in the St. Bernard than in the Collie. The idea originates undoubtedly from the fact that the monks use smooth coats only. It is not generally known that, as far back as there is any history of the breed, Rough-coated puppies were found in litters from smooth-coated parents. Such was the case long before the Newfoundland made its appearance in Switzerland. The monks, however, had no use for the long-haired puppies and hence gave them away to their friends and patrons. Since their breed has become so well known, 
They have sewed many of them at round figures, thus making their canals more or less self-supporting. In view of the above stated facts, the question arises, how is it that some of the progeny of smooth-coated have long coats? Those of your readers who have visited the mountain fastnesses of the Alps, where the winters last from September until May, and where during the remaining four months it is cold, or those who have travelled or lived in the northwest, and know what snowstorms and blizzards are, will readily understand that neither a pointer nor a setter would be comfortable in either place out of doors in a stormy winter's day. Not only would they not be comfortable, but in many instances it would be certain death to them. And why? Because the pointer's coat would be no protection to him, and the setter's would be a detriment. Sportsmen know that if a setter, while in the field, gets full of burrs, he will, game or no game, sit down and endeavor to free himself from them. While so doing, his attention is entirely centered on himself. He would do the same should his legs and feet get so full of ice or frozen snow as to hinder him in his movements. In respect to the Mastiff and the Newfoundland, the case would almost be a similar one as far as coat is concerned, except that the Newfoundland, if he be of the curly-coated variety, would be still worse than the setter with his flat coat. The Mastiff and Newfoundland, however, have greater size and strength in their favor. The kind of coat, therefore, that is needed for mountain service is exactly that found in the short-haired mountain St. Bernard neither too short nor too long, dense and smooth, such as is called stockhaarig in Switzerland, a coat that will be a protection in the coldest weather and yet short enough to prevent its being clogged by snow and ice. Whether this coat was produced by systematic crossing of short-haired and long-haired dogs, or whether it is a freak of nature, I cannot say, but I am inclined to believe that the former an account of the frequent appearances of rough-coated puppies in the litters from smooth coats and vice versa. In other words, the difference in coat in the breeds from which the St. Bernard has its origins continues to manifest itself in the progeny. Nature has no doubt done its part also, for we find in dogs bred in the mountains a much denser coat than in dogs bred in the lowlands. And as the undercoat is shed in the summer, so the coat becomes shorter and lighter in St. Bernard's, transported from their mountain home to a warmer zone. As to the distinction that is made in this country between the short-haired and long-haired variety, not breed, one cannot go wrong in following the custom that prevails in Switzerland and England. Apart from the difference in coat, there are slight differences between the two species, yet the type is the same, and it is certainly advisable to separate them at shows, as is done with rough and smooth collies. In the long-haired St. Bernard, the coat has a great deal to do with the general appearance of the dog, when comparing him with others in the same class. In the short-haired variety, the coat is more uniform, and whether a dog be out of coat or whether the coat be of the correct quality or not, the nature of the coat is more readily overlooked. Place a smooth coat along a rough coat of the same height and weight, and you will invariably decide in favor of the latter, as to size, when not seeing them together. The smooth coat is of a more compact build and shorter than the rough coat, generally speaking. There is no reason to fear that the crossing of the two varieties will be at the expense of type. On the contrary, it is necessary. This fact has been demonstrated in England, and the continuous breeding of rough coats with rough coats has taught English breeder that the breed loses in type, and in order to get back to genuine St. Bernard quality, they have imported, and still import, smooth coats, especially bitches, from Switzerland. The coat is also liable to grow too long and the longer it gets, the farther it is from its proper form. According to the standard of the Swiss Kynological Society, the rough-coated Saint Bernard is supposed to have a coat of medium length, not bushy or shaggy, 
not curly or too wavy but flat only slightly feathered on the forelegs and yet with many americans the longer the hair the more the coat is appreciated this is wrong but such is the fancy End of quote. the development of st bernard interests in america has been remarkably rapid during the past ten years and is illustrative of that enterprising spirit and that marked liberality with which americans always engage in any work that enlists their sympathy as illustrated of the magnitude of this movement it is only necessary to state that at the new york show of eighteen ninety with st bernard entries numbered one hundred fifty one at the chicago show of the same year they numbered fifty eight at boston fifty nine and at all other shows the entries in this breed more than doubled in number those of any previous year the total investments in st bernards in this country would run into millions of dollars and some of the choicest blood of europe has within the past few years found its way into american canals the special characteristics of the st bernard are his immense size his powerful muscular organization his great frame deep and broad chest his massive head and spacious brain pan his heavy coat his courage his unswerving devotion to his human or canine friends his kind benevolent disposition his sagacity and his aversion to disregard of the attention of strangers several specimens of the breed have reached a height of thirty-four inches or more at the shoulder and a weight of two hundred pounds or over plinlimon is thirty-five inches high sir birdiver and watch are each more than thirty-four inches and many others are over thirty-three inches volumes could be filled with anecdotes and incidents of the remarkable instinct the superior judgment the almost human intellect of the st bernard the heroic services rendered by these dogs in rescuing and aiding snowbound travellers in the swiss alps are too well known to require further mention here hundreds of instances occurring in our own country should be cited had we the space for them as showing the steadfast devotion of the st bernard for his friends i may recall the case of a boy who was drowned in a lake in new york while skating the body of the grand old st bernard dog who had been the constant companion of the boy was found at the bottom of the lake near that of his young master and the indications pointed plainly to the the fact that the boy having broken through the ice the dog had gone to his aid and had caught him and tried to pull him out that the ice had broken and the dog had fallen in then he had released his hold climbed out on the ice seized his master and tried again to drag him out but again the ice had broken these struggles had been repeated again and again until the noble brute exhausted by his efforts had sunk and died by the side of his young friend mr g w patterson writing of a st bernard bitch that he formerly owned says my little girl was enjoying a slide last winter back of my house and sylvia was accompanying her down the hill by running alongside when she reached the bottom of the hill the girl held out a rope saying here sylvia you must draw me back up the hill and although the dog had no training and was only eight months old she performed the task admirably if not as quick as she did afterward carrie never took a slide after that without having sylvia to draw her up the hill i could never tell which enjoyed it most both growing stronger under the influence of bracing air and exercise End of quote. it has been claimed by some of the opponents of the st bernard that he is dull of comprehension and difficult to train my experience and observation tell me that such is by no means the case i have known many st bernards that have been trained to perform some truly wonderful tricks errands and services 
and that with as little time and labor it would have been necessary to train the brightest spaniel to do the same work. Colonel C. A. Swineford of Barrowbrook, Wisconsin, had a St. Bernard that would, at his bidding, stand on his hind feet, place his forefeet on the office railing, and walk from one end to the other of it in this position. Then, at command, he would place his hind feet on the railing, and with his forefeet on the floor, repeat the operation. He would place his hind feet on the barrel, and standing with his forefeet on the floor, rolling it back and forth across the floor. His master could send him with a note or package to any house or office where he had ever been, and the dog would return promptly with the answer. A few hours had been sufficient in which to teach the dog either of these tricks. The St. Bernard is one of the most useful and valuable of all breeds as a watchdog. While not vicious or savage, he is alert, courageous, faithful, sagacious, and his great size renders him an object of dread to wrongdoers. Few men would care to disturb property of which he had charge. Besides being an excellent guardian for children, he is also an affectionate and patient companion for them. He may not romp or run with them, but will, if harnessed and hitched to a toy wagon, draw them as faithfully and patient as an old horse. He will allow them to ride him, rule him, or impose on his good nature in almost any way. They may choose and never resent object. Many of the noble qualities of the race are illustrated in the case of Safe, a noted St. Bernard formerly owned in England, of which a contributor through the American field recently wrote as follows. Mr. G. F. Smith mourns the loss of a dear friend and most faithful companion. This was champion Safe, E10626, one of the most notable St. Bernards ever seen. He was bred by a Reverend G. A. Snight, being by Othman, E6422, Hedwig. He was born in March 1879, and he was the only survivor of a litter of 15. It was on this account that he was called safe. In color and markings, he was admittedly the handsomest dog ever shown here. His strength was such that he was carry his master with ease, although he weighed 14 stone, and no two men could hold him with a chain or slip, if any one whom he knew called him. Yet he was so gentle that the smallest child could do anything with him. He was very fond of the company of ladies, among whom he was known as Gentleman Safe. He was also passionately fond of children and delighted in their company. For some years a court has been maintained in the children's hospital, at Sheffield, solely by money collected by Safe, who always carried a small cask attached to his collar. He used to go to the hospital twice a year, in January and July, to pay his contributions, and his visits were looked eagerly by the little ones, as all that were well enough in the ward which contained the safe cot had to ride on his back. He died calmly and painlessly on July 3rd, and this grand dog is sincerely mourned by his late owner and his family, as well by all the children of Sheffield and many of their parents. Probably no other dog had so wide a popularity, for his portrait, first published in 1882, afterward figured in almost every illustrated journal, and the story of his life, his strength, his intelligence, his docility, and his love for children had been told a hundred times. End of quote. The St. Bernard has frequently been utilized as a retriever, and it is believed by many that with proper training he would excel in this class of work. A writer in the Kennel Gazette gives interesting and valuable testimony on this point. He says, I had just put together my belongings preparatory to starting for Scotland in the evening. My friend with whom I was staying had kindly promised that during my absence he would take care of a valuable St. Bernard bitch, sister to Plin Lemon, which had recently been given to me, and as though conscious of our impending parting, Mitch, who has become greatly attached to me, lay at my feet, from time to time casting upward such beseeching glances as only our affectionate damp pets are capable of. As the afternoon wore on, 
and during the early evening the dog closely followed my every movement almost appearing to ask that she might accompany me until at the last moment i decided to take her the first outburst of cordial greeting which welcomed me as i drove up to the house of my friend was somewhat toned down upon the appearance of my pet i saw at once i had brought a visitor by no means popular in a sporting establishment but trusted that time might make matters smooth nor was i mistaken for the dog's very looks soon worked wonders days went happily by and with mitch for my companion i rambled by the river rod in hand she upon occasion leaving me to flock some pet stream where she took small hunting excursions on her own account i noticed on several occasions that she became wondrous keen at the sound of a gun and found one had only to raise a gun to one's shoulder to put her at once upon alert one day i had gone up to a loch for a day's trouting and while i was thus occupied two friends went to the upper end of it in quest of ducks it was with some difficulty that i prevented mitch from following them and later on her uneasiness at the sound of each shot and her efforts to jump over the side of the boat gave rise to such anathemas as might well have sunk a less sturdy craft after some time we were nearing the spot where the shooters were and when we got within some three or four hundred yards of them a duck was duly brought down at the sight of which mitch broke away from me swam to the bird a considerable distance retrieved it in perfect form without disturbing a feather later in the day other chances presented themselves the results being always satisfactory and especially so in one or two instances where a less powerful dog would have been utterly unequal to making his way through the thick reeds and such now to me it seems that with very little training these really well-bred st bernards might be the most useful in the field in such situations as i have mentioned and over heavy marshy ground and i sent the above account not desiring to claim more for them than they deserve but to meet the assertions many people make that these dogs are treacherous and useless pets to have about a place i may in conclusion say to other accomplishments mitch adds that of poacher hunting having on one occasion knocked down and held a man until the keeper with whom she had gone out on the quest came up and the prisoner was only too glad to surrender his arms and a countermance on condition of the dog being called off though she had not bitten him but merely held him down by the moral persuasion of a pair of heavy paws and an ominous growl when he had attempted to move End of quote. principles of breeding a would-be successful breeder frequently inquires what shall i do to obtain the best possible result from my stock there are in reality so many things to be taken into consideration that a short and concise answer would be hard to give first both the parents furnish their portion towards the production of the offspring but since the bitch nourishes it until birth and for months or more after it is natural to draw the conclusion that the young will more closely resemble the dam than the sire in a majority of cases perhaps they will resemble the sire in size and coat while their disposition and nervous temperament will follow closely that of the dam second as like produces like in dogs as in other animals the dispositions of both parents should be near to what is desired as possible or bad results will ensue hence it cannot be expected to produce a good litter of puppies by the union of a poor bitch to a celebrated prize-winning stud dog or by breeding a fine bitch to a second-rate dog third as every dog is a compound animal that is composed by a sire and a dam also by their sires and dams etc there is no certainty as to what one may expect in a litter unless he is fully acquainted with the dogs which make up the pedigree of its puppies for several generations back fourth 
as it is a well-established fact that the first service has its effect upon several subsequent litters, the breeder cannot exercise too much care upon a suitable union for his bitches. We have known instances where a bitch, being bred to a dog with a butterfly nose, part white, produced in that litter three out of seven puppies with the same fault, while in her three succeeding litters there was always at least one having this affliction, notwithstanding these subsequent litters were each from different sires. Fifth, inbreeding as a rule is to be discouraged, yet to produce certain results that may be practiced to a limited extent. Probably the best example of successful inbreeding may be found in the case of the rough-coated bitch Princess Florence. But continual inbreeding always produces smaller offsprings, so that by this mean it is possible to breed St. Bernard's, so-called, about the size of a child terrier. It is extremely necessary that both parents should be in perfect health at the time of breeding, the bitch especially, so she may be enabled to sustain the growth of the puppies before birth, and provide ample milk for them afterward. The best age at which to breed St. Bernard's is in bitches from 15 to 18 months, but no dog should be allowed to serve a bitch until he has reached the age of two years, by which time you will have fully matured. The best season of the year for breeding is in the spring and summer, as the young produced at the season get more outdoor exercise, which tends so much to strengthen the muscles and development generally. Winter puppies frequently become chilled, and hence their growth is slow, and they seldom reaching the statue of their more fortunate brothers. Another argument for spring and summer puppies is that these can compete at the following winter shows in the puppy classes, for by that time they are sufficiently matured to stand the excitement incident to such scenes. The bitch shows pretty plainly when she is about to come in heat, as she becomes restless, feverish, and exceedingly affectionate in her disposition. She usually has a bloody discharge from the vulva for nine days, and from three to five days after the cessation of the discharge is considered the best time to take her to the dog. Although some bitches will refuse to have any connection whatever with a dog later than the third day, so to be on the safe side, it is well to lose no time. Bitches as a rule come in season twice a year at pretty regular intervals, but we have known of some that produced three litters in two years. This, however, is unusual. When a bitch misses, her next season is very apt to be one month earlier than if she had produced her litter and weaned them. As soon as she is bred, she should be put in a secure place, as she will exercise great cunning in her efforts to escape and have intercourse with any animal she should chance to meet. During the earlier periods of her pregnancy especially, she should be inside, if possible, of a typical dog, as the antenatal impressions are often very pronounced. She should also be kept apart from others, not in a similar condition, and while she should get ample exercise, it must never be violent in any sense. Never allow her to jump or run to any extent, or to become alarmed. Toward the latter part of her time, when it has been clearly ascertained that she is in whelp, her food should be of a soft nature, with considerable milk given daily. A little raw meat, chopped fine, fed three or four times in the last week, often prevents bitches from eating puppies, though they may formerly have been in the habit of doing so. A piece of old carpet, placed on her regular bench, is about the best bed for a bitch when whelping. This can be thrown away after the whelping is over and replaced with a fresh piece, or with a bed of clean straw. A bitch that has been kept in good condition, neither too fat nor, on the other hand, too thin, seldom has any difficulties in parturition. 
great care should be exercised that no cold or any draught is permitted to penetrate into the kennel at this time as newly born puppies are easily chilled and thus destroyed the temperature should never be allowed to fall below 60 degree fahrenheit in the raping room very young puppies should be given milk two or three times daily until they are old enough to pick at bones and food that is given to their dam then after they are weaned great care should be exercised in the diet to guard against warmth End of section 33